Welcome to episode 140 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and I'm joined today uh, for our guest interview by John Markoff, who's a New York Times reporter for the next two days uh, and uh, author of a book entitled The Machines of Loving Grace. We'll be talking to him about... Um, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, and uh, uh, where they're taking us. Um, uh, for the news roundup, Alan Cohn, uh, who was head of strategy at DHS and uh, number two in that uh, office, uh, now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, Maury Shank is here, uh, former managing partner of our London office, who still advises us on technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, he's also a private equity investor and a director on a, a variety of technology companies. And uh, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, uh, one of our top litigators and chair of the firm's class action practice. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. Uh, um, Amori, uh, I was struck by a Euroactive report uh, uh, based on, I guess, a freedom of information request uh, saying that um, uh, at least five members of the EU have said that they uh, would welcome um, encryption controls. I wasn't sure that the, the facts in the story quite bore out the headline, but it seemed close. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, there's been a lot of noise in Europe about encryption and the going dark problem this year. Former UK Prime Minister David Cameron was saying a lot about it early in the year, and then in August, the French and German interior ministers gave a joint speech that seemed to kick off the current attention. Uh, and in September, the EU presidency, which is held by Slovakia, issued a questionnaire to all of the member states about encryption. And through this freedom of information request by it's a freedom, good name there, um, that we've managed to see some of the responses to it. Apparently there's been 25 of the 28 member states have replied, but only 12 of those 25 questionnaires has been disclosed, including neither France or Germany, who, who are big players on this. But the questionnaires are pretty interesting. They have a fair amount of information about national experience and uh, ally practices when encryption is involved, what the law is, and what they think should be done about it at the European level. So I, I think the main conclusion one can draw is that there's a lot of interest in this issue in Europe. I think we're pretty far away from any formal legislation. But it, it, is it fair to say that um, countries like Italy and Poland have said uh, we would really welcome some kind of controls on encryption? Yes. I mean, they, they asked the question pretty explicitly, and... And um, those countries are the ones that said, yes, a general EU legislation is needed. Okay. Some uh, of the others said that greater cooperation is needed. There were a variety of responses. Is there anybody who said absolutely not, no damn back doors at all? Uh, I have not read all of the responses, but I, um, I don't think anybody said it wasn't a problem. They've all said, you know, we've encountered some encryption problems. But I think some of the more... Uh, you know, civil countries with a civil libertarian tradition do not favor um, do not favor general legislation on this. 
Yeah, although that's we're we're, we're running out of those countries. There's there's the Dutch, maybe the Swedes, uh, uh, but uh, you know when you've got Germany and France and Italy uh, showing up on the other side and the UK, uh, um, it it certainly sounds like it wouldn't take more than a couple of uh, really bad stories or experiences to to start the ball rolling. Or elections. Or elections. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. The trend is clearly in in the direction of trying to do something about this issue. And there seems to be a broader acceptance um, of the principle that, okay, we've always had secrecy of communication problems, but it's a, it's a different kind of problem when you can have access to the communication and just no way to get at it. So I'm sure everybody will be thanking Tim Cook for having uh, brought this issue uh, to the fore because it's really working out the way he expected. Uh, uh, all right. Um, the FB, Speaking of uh, issues that are not quite working out as expected, uh, the FBI, according to a motherboard story, um, when they were running Playpen for 13 days, they were trying to figure out who was uh, downloading child porn. And in order to reach, uh, uh, to actually identify people, they had to de-anonymize their Tor connection, which meant that they had to put in a little piece of malware that would uh, act, reveal the actual IP address of the people who were downloading the child porn. And it now turns out that malware ran on like a thousand machines or more in 120 countries. Yes. So, and and I uh, I thought we had moved past the time when we were one one uh, jump away from Tim Cook and all our news stories. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but yes. Yeah, so uh, we had the playpen case. Uh, the FBI went ahead and put in a uh, network intrusion tool or a piece of malware to get the IP addresses. Um, and this kicked off a whole set of cases around the country, motions to suppress evidence, uh, because the the warrant to do that was issued by a magistrate in the Eastern District of Virginia. And these um, cases were popping up all over the country. In a hearing, a motion hearing involving three joint cases in Washington State, similar to all of the right. other cases, um, it turns out that in addition to all of the jurisdictions around the country where uh, this network intrusion tool kind of uh, was able to reach, um, that tool, in fact, reached over 8,000 computers in over 120 countries uh, based on that one Magistrates, are uh, you know, nobody's weeping for the guys who are downloading the child porn. Uh, but I have to say, you know, the Justice Department is is making free with the lectures about how if you let people engage in hacking back, uh, they might intrude into computers in other countries, and it would be a diplomatic disaster. Right? And at the same time, they apparently are uh, uh, engaged in their own diplomatic disaster here. Yes, uh, one little backdoor. Has turned into a thousand little backdoors all around the world. Yeah, well, uh, fascinating. Um, okay, here's one I just couldn't resist. Uh, uh, it's WeVibe. WeVibe is a uh, vibrator that has its own um, phone, cell phone app. Uh, and uh, this, the, the, what I was struck by was what, why you would want an app that went with your vibrator, but apparently it's so that you can have other people um, t- 
turn it on and off uh, and exchange text messages and engage in video tra- chats uh, uh, with their phones. Uh, so, you know, uh, this was this is all completely news to me. But apparently, the company WeVibe that that made that app available kept information about the date, the time, you, the usage details of the uh, the connected uh, vibrator, and the email addresses of everybody who was registered to use it. Uh, um, and now, not surprisingly, uh, WeVibe is getting sued. It's class action. Uh, and uh, naturally, uh, our class action expert is here to explain whether WeVibe has a a prayer of prevailing in this uh, in this case. Well, let let me just uh, clarify, Stuart. It, you should refer to it as a sensual lifestyle product. I, I beg your pardon, <laughs> I, or I, I beg Weavey's pardon. <laughs> yes, and in fact, the the feature that that Stuart mentioned is that really the focus of this lawsuit, which is the the connect lover feature, which allows video and text chat capability and conveys information about usage and then also the identity of the people who are engaged in these chats. Um, now, the allegation in the complaint is that this uh, transfer of information through the manufacturer's server is not disclosed, and that for that reason, it violates the Wiretap Act. Right, because they're, they're they're actually in the middle uh, collecting the uh, the chat. Correct, and uh, that uh, that of course is extremely uh, appealing to plaintiffs' lawyers because it brings with it the prospect of statutory. Uh, damages, which means you 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 have a class action and you automatically have the same damages for everybody, so you don't have to worry about the class collapsing. Well, right, but that's that. The question is whether that's viable after Spokio, and I think that this is kind of there may be a method to the madness here, uh, in the sense that um, just the very private and intimate nature of the information that's being conveyed here um, makes this case kind of an appealing case for plaintiffs to push the limits that the Supreme Court tried to impose in Spokio about the concreteness of injury. This is not a case about hacking, although that is kind of funny to think about, but that someone has actually hijacked the ability to use the device through someone's phone. But it's actually just about the fact that this information is being routed through the server. And so for plaintiffs, this is kind of a good case to kind of test what is concrete injury, I think. So they'll, they'll actually be able to stretch the Supreme Court decision a little further than they otherwise would. I think that that might be what they're after here. In addition to some money for themselves, this is the Edelson firm very active in this area. And then, of course, you know, divorce lawyers everywhere will undoubtedly feast on the information that this uh, potentially provides. Well, and, and for the Edelson firm, there's certainly, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say this, but there's a lot of buzz in the uh, uh, in the case. Stretching the innuendo. Okay. Well, here's a... A, a, a two-part discussion uh, that I've I've lumped under the heading uh, the wages of defeat because uh, first all of a sudden uh, out of the blue Jill Stein and and then uh, the Clinton campaign have decided that uh, because of the possibility that the uh, 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 that uh, uh, Russians hacked the elections in places like uh, Michigan and Wisconsin uh, that there ought to be a recount. Uh, and Jill Stein has raised an enormous amount of money to have the recount. Uh, the Clinton campaign has jumped on board. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much evidence, uh, maybe none, of uh, of hacking, but um, 
you know, no one wants to give up. And so we're, uh, uh, we're faced with the possibility of, uh, uh, weeks if not months of doubt about uh, exactly what the margin of victory was in these in these cases. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think we have two issues going on. Number <clears throat> one is, you know, did did any hacking change the results of the election? And I think even if you listen to most of the pronouncements from from Democrats right now, the the answer is likely no. You know, the right. the 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 um, even the guy who started it basically says no I don't believe that there there was a, 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 there was hacking that actually influenced the election well enough to 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 sway at the same time though you on the other side you have three very close elections all you know either right below one percent margin or right above mm-hmm. which is not an unreasonable um, spread to re- to request a, a recount um, and you have this question about which we'll get to in just in part two uh, about what seems like a pretty clear information warfare campaign of whether there was also a hacking campaign. And it does seem in the same way that after the 2000 election, we ended up, well, going with electronic voting machines and then pulling them back in favor of other types of machines that, you know, in four years or eight years from now, the fact that we would go back and do a, you know, an audit or a recount in closed states to check for hacking is probably going to be a kind of a run of the mill kind of thing that government does. I'm kind of wondering if there isn't some room for um, a bipartisan agreement. Now that suddenly, you know, uh, the left is worried about Russia uh, and, you know, uh, has embraced Mitt Romney's uh, uh, geopolitical strategies, uh, um, a it is, a and the question. right has walked away from them. Exactly, exactly. And maybe we can actually uh, ask the question: What should we do to protect against hacked elections? And and there's plenty of stuff that could be done that you might even be able to get agreement uh, in Congress on. I think that's right, and I think you you can look um, you know at the 2000 election as a, as an example of that, where you had most of the major news organizations which we'll talk about in a moment, um, as well as academic institutions, uh, you know, kind of banding together, requesting the records from the state of Florida and going through and, and kind of recounting votes in, in kind of a, what if we took this from a, as neutral a position as we could just to see what happened for the, for, for the historical record. But don't you think it makes, it makes sense first to, to have all of it be optical and uh, paper ballots, everything should be paper, and then the, you, should, you can scan them optically to, uh, and then go back and on a sample basis, recount the, the paper ballots by looking at them uh, and saying, you know, we we found these number of uh, votes and they match up or don't match up with what the machine reported. You know, I think that that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable thing to start with. It pains me to think about, though, us taking that kind of a step back in the march of technology for not enabling something as fundamental to American democracy as voting with, you know, technological tools, even if the ones that we have today are, are not adequate for, you know, the challenges that we might have fight, faced this year or not. Um, there's got to be maybe not in maybe not sole solutions but better solutions that we can look to also going forward um that can have the integrity that we're looking for that don't require us to go back to the pen and the quill yeah i don't know i uh, uh, the idea that uh, everything is better if it's computerized i think is taking a beating the last uh, uh 10 years or so uh, uh and so i'm you know my inclination is to say why don't we stop embracing the future in stupid ways and getting hanging chads and hacked elections for our trouble. Well, we seem to get those uh, 
those whatever we whatever we do. So I think I, I, a bipartisan it, it, approach makes a lot of sense. One thing that would be very interesting is to ask how could we screw up um, paper. Uh, op- electro-optical reading, because I'm sure, you know, we're, we were all told, be sure to completely darken in the circle that you want to darken, and you can be absolutely sure that there are people putting check marks, people putting X marks, people incompletely uh, uh, marking the circle, uh, and so we're going to have a lot of... Um, Uncertain, ambivalent, uh, ambiguous results coming out of uh, even this new approach, which uses paper ballots. I think that's right, but there's got to be something that we can do, and in, in, in looking at new technologies coming down the road, that that we don't need to make our our paper ballots uh, chat with each other and vibrate. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So the other the other topic again, where with the sort of uh, uh, the regret of the left. Being expressed as it, um, as a sense of uh, uh, there's a big social problem that has to be dealt with. What is this fuss about fake news? And the and the Washington Post have an endless story uh, uh, claiming that Russia propaganda uh, affected the election, that there were fake news, that it was primarily uh, of value to uh, the Trump side of the ticket uh, um, and the enthusiasm for uh, proclaiming that fake news was, is a social problem that has to be addressed immediately um, and that, again, Russia is part of the problem, which um, uh, remarkably has created uh, bedfellows between the Trump campaign and uh, uh, The Intercept, uh, where Glenn Greenwald is debunking this uh, article from the Washington Post because, uh, in passing, it attacks uh, uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. As a Russian front, yes. yes. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting to watch because I think back in the Reagan years, um, the right used to call this Russian propaganda. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it does seem that there was a pretty... You know, pretty substantial effort to at least muck around. Oh, absolutely. The, in U.S. social media and news outlets, uh, and that that had its desired effect. And that, you know, whether you ascribe that to um, telling people what they wanted to hear or whether you ascribe that to the Russians just doing to us what we, what they felt like we did to them in, in Ukraine or, or other places. Um, you know, it's, it is interesting to, to see this being almost pushed over as a social issue as, as opposed to a national security issue, which is, you know, kind of the place that we would have seen it residing back, you know, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, I, I think that's right. We, th- this, Clearly, would have been about uh, Soviet propaganda if it, were, if it were 20 years earlier, uh, and uh, now it's it's about score settling between the left and the right. Uh, oh, Breitbart, they're alt right, they're they're racist. We can't let them uh, uh, affect our news. And for sure, you know, there are fake stories. Uh, the, my, my problem here is I don't know what under the First Amendment we can do about it at all as a government, uh, and I have almost zero confidence in the the barons of silicon valley uh doing this cuz uh, you know they they clearly have their own uh political views and they are way to the left or maybe off on a libertarian scale from most of the country as witness uh, the the recent election yeah no i think that that's right and i think that actually mark zuckerberg said something that that is probably the the um the bigger issue which is that that people 
in this day and age seem to to want to read news that only that resonates with them and not uh, and not other other messaging. So we do have this this strange concept of either putting it on Facebook or Twitter to moderate what we see, or at the same time looking at questions of well if this news organization is saying that that this person that you know that that this group um is dishonest more than that group i mean are are we advocating for affirmative action for fact checking where it has to be exactly the same number right. on each each side well i i think i think actually i mean at, at the the problem with fact checking is demonstrated by the fact that i think politifact which was once a pretty respectable fact-checking organization, uh, and now says, uh, yeah, we found um, nine times as many Republican lies as Democratic lies. Uh, uh, an utterly implausible statistic, unless you think it tells you more about PolitiFact than about uh, Republicans and Democrats. Well, or it may <clears throat> tell you something about, uh, uh, you know, just just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you, you know, so. Uh, well, but th- this, th- these are the guys who fact-checked uh, Obama's statement that uh, uh, it, the uh, uh, if you wanted to keep your plan, you could, and found it true. Uh, you know, later it was um, described as you know the lie of the year, but uh, it was described as true because Obama had said that. Right on on the same ground, I guess you could say, well, yeah, Trump is going to build a wall, and Mexico is going to pay for it because that's his program. No, but Politico, but Politifact has given uh, given President Obama three Pinocchios on statements before, also. Yes, I, I think this is just this is just as as dangerous a road to go down as saying that Mark Zuckerberg or uh, well, no, you're uh, right. You, you can't. Know, you can't. Dorsey we should be we, we cannot. I mean, it is clear that. Just because you call it fact-checking doesn't mean that it isn't biased opinion journalism. And we've we've seen a lot of opinion journalism in this area from Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post and from the guys down in Tampa who did the uh, PolitiFact uh, stuff, uh, which means that there's no good way to start saying, well, I know that's fake. I mean, we can certainly all say that's for sure completely made up. But uh, on the question of uh, what are facts and what are opinions, uh, we, we've got no good solution. Yeah, in a sense, it would almost be better for Facebook to have kind of a mandatory, here's the contrary opinion feed, yeah. just to make sure that people are seeing or, you know, or something in of, which of what's going on. lots of people read it and they get to say, you get, you get a little thing up in the uh, right-hand corner that said uh, 10% of the people who read this thought it was a Fake news. Well, that tells you something. It doesn't tell you for sure it's fake news, but it might be a clue. Um, Which of my friends thought that? (laughs) Yes, that's right. I'm going to have to call my friends list until I get it down to zero. Yes, exactly. Um, And and my other worry is, you know, the Russia Today stuff, uh, um, where we know that they are doing this in an effort to shape our political system uh, and finding a way to identify fake news that are uh, stories that come from hostile foreign states strikes me as the most important and, and not clear how we're going to do that. I mean, I guess one one um, uh, one approach could be read the byline. Um, <laughs> if something yes. says it's from Russia today, maybe take it with a grain of salt in the same way that I think uh, uh, the Russians would say that if you're sitting in... Uh, in Ukraine, and you see a, a story from Voice of America, it probably has a particular point of view to it. 
Well, I, uh, I'm, I, I continue to think that there's something that could be done with the Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, uh, to say uh, if you're trying to influence uh, American public opinion uh, and you're controlled by a foreign government, uh, there ought to be a label somewhere on the on the news. Uh, uh, but uh, so far, that has not happened. Uh, well, what, for news. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, let's turn to uh, John Markoff uh, and uh, his book, Machines of Loving Grace. Uh, uh, John, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So the first thing I wanted to uh, uh, get out is where the title of your book came from, and I noticed it's, you know, you'd make a secret of it, uh, the uh, the epigraph at the beginning is a Richard Browdigan uh, poem. I don't know if if he is as popular as as, as uh, he now as he was in the 70s, but he was like the original oh. hippie uh, poet, uh, and his... Uh, uh, his poem is, uh, I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, return to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Uh, I thought that poem was interesting for two uh, uh, reasons. First, uh, he uses the word cyber, uh, cybernetic. Uh, um, that is currently a, uh, a cue for mocking laughter in Silicon Valley. Anybody who says cyber uh, might as well wear a, uh, a tie and a suit to a Google uh, interview. Um, it, it's a sign of – it's deemed to be a sign of cluelessness, but it, it, it shows that there's a long uh, history to, to using cyber in this context. Actually, you're – you're, you're a step behind, Stuart. You're not. You're not up on stuff. Cybernetics is making a comeback. No kidding. Uh, you have been following the most avant-garde part of the web. You know, the term comes from Norbert Wiener in the 1940s, and right. uh, I, I understand what you're saying. But there is a movement to uh, bring back cyber cybernetics um, as a as a field and as a field of study. I'm all for that. Just, if, just because I think the, the mocking laughter has gotten a little uh, ahistorical. Uh, uh, you know, these these are people who uh, graduated from college in '99 uh, and uh, uh, never read Wiener's stuff. Uh, um, let, let me ask you then: Is Brodigan still cool? Oh, well, no, Brodigan is forgotten. Okay. Brodigan was, uh, you know, a crossover from the beat to the hippie era. Yes, he was sort of, uh, you know, a uh, a, a well-known poet in in America in the 60s and 70s, and uh, you know, quite quite popular with with my generation, um, and uh, you know, uh, long gone, <laughs> but but not not entirely forgotten. And I, you know, I, I might have, if I had my way about it, I might have put a question mark after the title. Um, yep. It was it was, uh, but I loved the poem, and uh, um, it was I, I wanted to bring it back. Well, it 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 and it, it makes a point um, that, um, that really the book is about. I, it, it, as I read the book, you're really you're saying there is a long history, um, maybe a long civil war in the tech cyber community between the people who want to build machines that will do everything people do and essentially make it unnecessary to have people uh, uh, in particular uh, jobs or uh, um, activities uh, and people who say, no, what we ought to be doing is building machines that will help 
um, people do particular jobs. So it's a, a fight between replacing and augmenting uh, human beings, uh, um, and that that the people who wanted to replace human beings have had multiple runs at doing that and have largely failed uh, each time uh, provoking what you call an uh, artificial intelligence winter um, and 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 we and you're you know the the strands of that continue today yeah you know I, this, this this book grew out of an earlier book and I noticed that in the 1960s at the dawn of interactive computing there were two laboratories one on either side of the Stanford campus and one was uh, the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory run by a guy by the name of John McCarthy who coined the term artificial intelligence. And he set out to build a, a, mach- a machine that was artificially intelligent. He thought the pro- uh, you know, a, a thinking machine. And he thought the project would take 10 years in 1962. And on the other side of campus, um, there, there was uh, Douglas Engelbart. You probably know him because he was the inventor of the mouse. But yep. he had this notion that machines could augment humans. And um, the sort of the interesting thing is that at, the, at that time, in the early 60s, uh, you know, McCarthy was seen as serious computer science, and uh, Engelbart was seen as more ephemeral, ephemeral word, word processing, uh, sort of stuff that wasn't real serious computer science. But Engelbart won the first round uh, because his work led directly to the personal computer and the Internet, tools that are clearly, you know, things that augment us. And AI failed initially, and now we're sort of back. I don't know if there was actually a civil war between those two communities as much as they sort of ignored each other, mm-hmm. um, have ignored, you know, there is an AI community, and then there is also something called an HCI community, Human Computer Interaction Community, which does design uh, by putting a human in the center. And, um, you know, I, I could when I looked at that, I realized that, there was both a dichotomy here and a paradox, because, of course, if you augment a human, you need fewer humans. And the book is a, sort of my uh, effort to sort of square that circle to the degree it's possible. You know, I, I, I've had that same sense that, uh, uh, in a way, this feels like a, uh, a division, but not as crisp a division as one might like, because um, uh, it, it, it does seem pretty clear that uh, the key to becoming a billionaire was to work on human augmentation, uh, not on human replacement, but that uh, as you augment people, uh, people's ability, uh, uh, you make whole classes of worker uh, unnecessary. I mean, I, I, I don't know, there may be people who just still describe themselves as bookkeepers, but uh, basically the bookkeeping software uh, and and PCs have, have made that unnecessary. Uh, I certainly am aware that uh, Microsoft is absolutely determined to get rid of uh, uh, my secretary uh, uh, as fast as it possibly can, uh, uh, and they've made it possible for uh, uh, my secretary to work for a whole lot more people than when I started working. So um, that's just augmentation, but it's it's augmentation that makes a whole bunch of jobs unnecessary. Yeah, and the economy has changed going all the way back to the Luddites. And so uh, what's happened now is we uh, we tend to, as a society, become anxious about automation technologies about every decade and a half. And we're passing through that right now based on progress in these AI technologies. But 
Um, you know, I, I started out in that hair on fire camp, actually, when I began this book, and I really came to a different point of view. And uh, just for your readers, there's, a, there's actually a, a really wonderful article that I would commend by a MIT labor economist, David Otter, A-U-T-O-R, called Why Are There Still So Many Jobs? Um, because the first thing you have to deal with in the United States when you say, um, you know, oh, my God, all the jobs are gone, is there are more people working in the United States today than have ever worked in history, if you look at the absolute number. And we can get into all the subtleties, but let, let me just tell you what changed my mind about where we are. It was actually an argument I was having with Danny Kahneman, the behavioral economist, and I was basically trying to make the argument that automation was going to come to China and it was going to lead to social disruption. And he stopped me and he said, you don't get it. He said, in China, they'll be lucky if the robots come just in time. I said, excuse me? And he walked me through the demographics of modern China, which is a rapidly, a very rapidly aging society, as is Japan, as is Korea, as is the United States, as is Europe. Every place in the world except for Africa is actually aging. And so you have two problems then. In China, for example, the working age workforce in the last year declined by almost five, five million workers. And then on the other side of that, you have something called the dependency ratio. Um, the number of people over 80 in the world by the middle of the century is going to double, and it will go up by seven times um, by the end of the century globally. And for the first time in history, last year, we had more people who were over 65 in the world that were un than, than who were under five. And so in a graying society, actually, there'll be lots of uses for robots. Um, and I've gone around, I've changed uh, my question to roboticists. I used to ask roboticists when there would be a self-driving car, but I think that's not the important question. The important question to ask a roboticist is, is when will there be a robot um, that can safely give an aging human a shower? Because there are not going to be enough, ro uh, there are not going to be enough humans to care for the aging population. Um, around the world. And so that sort of really reframed things for me, and it's a different way of looking at the problem of automation. Yeah, I, uh, that that does sound racist, and that, and that really uh, um, brings home the idea that we're all going to be watched over by machines of loving grace pretty dramatically. It's uh, <laughs> exactly what they'll be doing with us, huh? Uh, well, you know, then you, you've seen the movie Her, I Trust. Yes. Um, where, in which a, a lonely programmer falls in love with a soon-to-be super-intelligent machine. And I actually think, you know, for all the science fiction movies, that's the most interesting one in terms of things that I see actually happening around Silicon Valley is, you know, uh, the current sort of fad in Silicon Valley in terms of the AI world is conversational interfaces. Um, think of Siri on steroids, and everybody, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, IBM, they're all rushing to build these conversational systems. And that takes us back to this AI versus IA question, AI being uh, artificial intelligence and IA being intelligence augmentation. So you can design the system. Let's take the call center worker, for example, um, who, a job that may or, uh, you know, may or may not be at risk very soon because of these conversational systems. You could design the system to make a smarter call center operator or you could get rid of the call center operator, and that's the decision uh, of the designer. And all of these companies are wrestling with that question right now. So, yeah, we we, we uh, talked to a couple of people uh, uh, last week uh, about uh, 
uh, futures in uh, uh, technology uh, and where big data was going. And uh, one of their observations was it's quite possible that we'll have profoundly personalized but big data um, uh, informed uh, uh, assessments of our emotional state um, very soon. Uh, uh, it, when you combine the kinds of sensors that it's possible to get, plus the ability to read emotion from voices and uh, heart rate and uh, uh, skin galvanic uh, 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 signals, um, it. And then when you uh, assess uh, uh, 80% of the marriages that you've observed, it isn't that hard to kind of satisfy people's need for companionship and love. Uh, uh, and we're probably pretty close to designing machines that, that, that can do it. Uh, well, <laughs> the, example, the example in that case, if you're going in that direction, is a Microsoft chatbot called Zhao Ice, which was deployed in China. You know, they had a terrible problem here with Tay, the the thing that turned into a misogynistic racist immediately. But in China, they got a very different outcome in that they have 12 million people, largely young demographic, um, who have basically intense and intimate conversations, as many as 60 interactions a day with this chatbot. 25% of the 12 million texted the phrase, I love you, to it. They call it toilet time. They go into the bathroom late at night to have uh, conversations with it. So... Uh, you know, when I actually went over to China and looked at it, it was a little bit more template-like than I had surmised, but we're moving down that path um, where you'll be able to interact with the machine and not know that you're interacting with the machine. Well, so this is the mistake that WeVibe made. They thought you wanted to text to some other human being if they just put an artificial <laughs> intelligence at the other end. <laughs> you know, you could hardly complain that the machine is collecting your, your, your signals. In fact, it's not even an intercept if you're talking to a machine. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I do think uh, we're going to see that because there's so much money in that in the long run. If, 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 if if this machine induces anything close to love and then says, well, if you really loved me, you know, you'd buy that thing on Amazon. Uh, that's all you have to have to do. And, and you're in your home free in terms of uh, uh, your next billion. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, I- and- well, I was interested. You spent a lot of time on robotics and not so much time on uh, uh, big data uh, uh, and using uh, data about other uh, people uh, and their experiences to inform the kind of robotics you got. But it seems to me that actually, you know, uh, Apple's losing the, the, the Siri uh, uh, battle despite having started it uh, uh, because they don't collect enough data on their users to know, to, to give good answers to the questions people are asking. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about you that, know, but that's my I, sense. Well, I think, yeah, I, I have a little bit of uh, insight into what's going on at Apple, and I, I, you know, the amount of data Apple is collecting with Siri is vast. It's on the scale of Google. Um, and so, you know, Siri has been making the same kind of radical improvements that, that uh, Google now has been making and Cortana has been making. I, I think those three companies have access to all the data in the world. If you're, if you're talking those machine learning kinds of technologies can, that can bring rapid improvement, it's going on everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that Amazon very badly with Echo yeah. wants to be part of that, uh, uh, as well. So, let, then let me ask the question, where do you think we go in the next 
five to ten years. Uh, well, uh, are we going to see uh, functioning robotics that can give us showers? Uh, uh, how do people turn this into something that uh, has enough money in it to uh, actually uh, lead to really big changes? Yeah, so I, I guess that's where I'm a, a, a little bit of a pessimist on a lot of the enthusiasm in Silicon Valley. I mean, I've seen this happen in Silicon Valley a, a number of times. I mean, AI as a field over a long, long time has over-promised and under-delivered. And yep. now it's starting to deliver, and so immediately people are promising the moon. But I have a bet. I live in San Francisco, and I've been going around the country saying that if an Uber robot car shows up at my house in 2025 and takes me to dinner in Palo Alto, I'm buying. And it's not a bet I'm going to lose. Well, no, um, because because you know, those, those, those Uber uh, cars don't eat that much. <laughs> 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 no, good point. But we're also not going to have real self-driving cars as soon as, as people like Elon Musk claim we will. Yeah, and, um, uh, it, it is pr- pretty remarkable uh, just in the last 10 years from that first DARPA kind of pitiful cars in the ditch in every direction uh, to where we are now. It's remarkable uh, progress. Uh, um, and we could, if we were willing to clear our roads, we probably could, and, and have only robotic drivers, we probably could do it uh, in three years, but we're not. Yeah, the, the, the problem is unless you can take the human completely out of the loop, if you have to have this thing they call the handoff, um, it's just not a problem they can solve. If you're reading your email or you're watching World of Warcraft or whatever and you have to take over, um, you can't get back into situ- what's called situational awareness quick enough to do anything. So that's just a non-starter. And it's why you know people didn't pay enough, enough attention to Google changing their car program. They went from you know a fleet of Priuses to a, a fleet of cars without steering wheels and accelerators and brakes. And the reason they did that is they found a series when they, you know, began dogfooding the technology and gave it to their employees to commute with, they found a series of um, distracted driving behaviors up to and including falling asleep. Yeah. And if you're asleep, <laughs> you can't take over in an emergency. No, I think there's just no hope. I mean, that that is, um, there's nothing humans are worse at than being ready to respond uh, uh, to an emergency in a context where 98% of the time there are no emergencies. Uh, uh, that's just not yeah. what we're good at. Uh, um, and so uh, I, I did think, they probably overdid it. You have to have some ability to limp to the side of the road and uh, uh, and maneuver around a little. But yeah, they probably uh, that should be clearly an emergency uh, thing, just like uh, those stupid little tires are that we use when that we now use when we get flats, uh, where you can't use them forever, but uh, it'll get you somewhere. That, that's that's resilience in the face of um, uh, surprises. But the idea that we're going to wake up and avoid the tractor trailer coming the wrong, down the uh, uh, road the wrong direction, that's just not going to happen. Uh, if the machine can't well, do that, we're, we're toast. Let's talk about lawyers because um, that was an area that I was very interested in because uh, you know technologies like e-discovery were starting to have an impact on the legal workforce. And uh, there, too, there was a, a paper by an MIT um, uh, labor economist, Frank Levy, recently, um, where he actually went in and looked at what lawyers do and then looked at what you know, automation tasks could replace portions of the complete job. And, you know, it, the impact is single digit. 
It's not, I mean, clearly automation is having impact, but it's not the kind of thing where there'll be um, a wave of automation technology which will change the profession overnight. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to the extent that there are changes and I see them, I, I just thank God for them. But uh, there's nothing more soul-destroying in the legal profession than uh, uh, discovery review where you put uh, smart people in a room and make them look at documents day after day, month after month. Uh, writing up little notes and trying to figure out how how significant these things are, uh, and now the tools that allow you to quickly uh, absorb masses of that kind of data, put it into a framework that allows you to uh, jump to the stuff that matters is that's terrific. It's uh, it, it uh, and and the jobs that it has eliminated, which are very real. And I'm coming out of uh, law school. I think it's it's tough uh, if you aren't at the top of your class, uh, uh, but for for most of us who practice law, uh, while there's less profit, uh, it's a much more satisfying uh, uh, practice than it was when uh, uh, you were just running this uh, uh, sweatshop of uh, uh, lawyers who never saw the sun. So what do you think it means? I mean, there's the, the, one of the nightmares we keep hearing is autonomous uh, weapons. Uh, and I did like the line in your, uh, 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 slightly modified in your book that said, uh, uh, we'll know the weapon is autonomous when we tell it to kill somebody and it decides to go to the beach instead. Um, <laughs> but uh, how much of a, uh, of a concern is the idea that our robots will be turned against us? Yeah, so, you, you know, we've had a, a, a growing discussion about um, self-aware machines, sentient machines, super-intelligent machines, um, uh, the singularity, and I think that still falls deeply inside the realm of science fiction. That said, um, autonomous machines are real today, and you know that's basically taking human decision-making and embedding it in software. And um, it's, you know, since you've asked about weapons, it's already affecting the nature of warfare. And um, I think in, in terms of what I worry about in terms of these machines, it's it's um, an arms race, not not of nuclear weapons, but an arms race um, in nations building autonomous weapons that um, um, basically makes war less controllable. And, um, you know, the U.S., we have this notion that the, the drone has allowed us to remove our soldiers from the battle, um, but... The implication in the future is that um, when we're facing a symmetric enemy, is that you know our our soldiers who you know are where in Las Vegas and Florida will become targets, and the the battlefield will expand, not contract. So I think there, you know, it, it's we're about to deploy a system. The United States is called the long range anti ship missile, which is entirely um, predicated on growing Chinese military power. And the Chinese have said that they're about to deploy a cruise missile with AI capabilities. And, you know, I just basically think that nothing good can come of, come of that. I don't think the world becomes a more stable place from those weapon systems. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, we've been lucky how stable the world has been up to now, uh, uh, unstable as it may feel. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, close on, on the question of... Uh, 
what uh, the singular how how science fictiony the singularity is. This is an issue that really divides Silicon Valley. Yeah, um, and for a while, uh, uh, Bill Joy and others were uh, raising um, concerns about the singularity and what it meant for the near term. And it's gone out of favor, but if you scratch, uh, you know, uh, 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 people uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, including Elon Musk, uh, if I believe, um, they will start to tell you horror stories that they're concerned about. Uh, so um, uh, why is it that we're hearing less about it, even though uh, it remains well, a concern? Yeah, I think the majority of AI researchers realize that we really don't understand what the brain is and how can you model the brain if you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's the first barrier. The, the second barrier is Moore's Law is over for the moment. So all of that religious belief in Moore's Law is is sadly um, in abeyance because the cost of individual transistors has not fallen for two years. So you don't get the free ride in Silicon Valley at the moment that you used to get, which nobody likes to talk about, but it's, it's real and it, it, it's affecting the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I, once again, let me, com- the, the best book on the subject that I've found is, was written by a professor of religion, actually. It's called Apocalyptic AI, which compares the, the sort of the singularity movement in Silicon Valley to traditional millennial religious movements. And I think there's a lot to that, that there's always a belief that, you know, a, a brighter land is just around the future, or you know, or, or a dystopia, um, or it's rocking, <laughs> or a dystopia. That's right. That's right. So I, 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 I see that. Um, but just as uh, sometimes paranoids really do have enemies, uh, sometimes uh, uh, the second coming really comes. So you just uh, you you can't be sure, right? Uh, let me let, let me just close. I I know you're finishing up uh, your uh, your time at the New York Times, and uh, we've spent. Uh, probably 25 years uh, um, uh, dealing with each other on uh, uh, issues uh, related to technology. Uh, what are you going to do next, uh, and uh, what should our listeners be watching for? Well, you know, I'm, I, I think I'll continue to write about technology. I'm, my my book project is a biography of Stuart Brand, who was the um, the person who created the whole Earth catalog back in the 1960s, and it, he's continued to do interesting things since then. But I'm also going to be a writer in residence next spring at the University of California, Berkeley, um, looking into computer theory and sort of the future of computing. Excellent. That's great. Uh, well, it has been a pleasure. Uh, John Markoff, uh, the book is Machines of Loving Grace. It's a good overview of the history and prospects of artificial intelligence and intelligence augmentation. Uh, 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 John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stuart. Nice chatting. Good to talk to you. Uh, also, thanks to Alan Cohn, Maury Shank, and Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff. Uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback, uh, send questions, suggestions for interview candidates and topics to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com, uh, or just leave us a, a glowing review on iTunes. Uh, this has been episode 140 of the Stepto Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Scott Charney of Microsoft, also with 
25 or more years uh, at the forefront of uh, computer technology by Matthew Green, who's probably been alive a little bit longer than 25 years, the, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute. Uh, uh, we hope that you'll join us for those episodes and others as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>